So if you are not already already there, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Jude, and if you would stand to honor God's word as I read for you verses 17 through 23 from the book of Jude, one book before the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. We are reading now beginning in verse 17. Jude continues, and he writes, But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you, In the last time there will be mockers, following after their own ungodly lust. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit, But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. And have mercy on some who are doubting, save others, snatching them out of the fire, and on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh." So ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. May God bless us as we study the word together. Last week, we had the privilege of hearing a message from Dinesh. It was a message, if you recall, from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. And what he sought to do in that message, if you recall, is to remind us and to motivate us towards a proper biblical boldness in our proclamation of the gospel. What we need now today is not hiding. What we need now today is not shrinking back. It's not trying to fly under the radar, and many would think that's the thing to do because, well, there's so many out to ridicule or get those who would proclaim the faithfulness or the faithfully the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need boldness in our proclamation of Christ. We were reminded that to the degree of our boldness in talking to others about the good news, that while everyone is a sinner, not able to live up to the holy standards of God, which are required if we would avoid being eternally condemned to the deserved judgment of hell, God in his love and grace sent forth his son, Jesus Christ, to stand in the place of condemned sinners. I pray you know to stand in your place as a condemned sinner. He took punishment upon himself, and he graciously grants to those who believe his own merits, his own perfect righteousness, so that when God the Father looks upon the sinner who has faith in Jesus Christ, he no longer sees a hell-bound sinner covered with the filth of iniquity. He looks upon the perfect uh, merits of his son, Jesus Christ, and he's been made fit for eternity in heaven. And I remind you of that because to the degree that we believe that message, that we have boldness to proclaim that message, it is to that degree that we believe that God is sovereign in our circumstances, that regardless of what others may say about us or do to us because we proclaim that message, we know God is in control. To that degree that we are bold, we know that God's message is true. We are compelled to preach the gospel. We know nothing else. I have nothing else to offer. Silver and gold I do not have. But what I do have, I will give to you. I will give to you Jesus Christ, the Nazarene who died and rose again. And to the degree that we have this boldness, it would flow from that, Dinesh reminded us, a sense of responsibility, of urgent responsibility that we must tell others about God's saving work through his son, Jesus Christ. But one of the things that stood out to me in the message was a key reason given for believers lacking that boldness. Why is it that we struggle with being as bold as we ought? I mean, I think if I were to take a quick straw poll and ask, how many of you would truly desire to be more bold in sharing Jesus, we'd all raise our hands. But what is it that keeps us from that? What is it that keeps this lack of boldness from being expressed, of only giving lip service, in a sense, to the sovereignty of God, of giving lip service to the fact that we believe the truth of God's word? Well, if you are here, 
you might remember what was said. And it really stuck in my head. He said that we tend to prefer safety and comfort over boldness. We like a sense of security. We want to just keep things the way they are. We don't want to rock the proverbial boat. For with boldness comes not security, but scrutiny. In boldness, a proclaiming Christ doesn't come comfort, but controversy. And even more, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ may well result in persecution. The opposite of boldness, we were reminded, is cowardice. When we are not bold, we are being cowardly. We shrink back. We say nothing that might interrupt our self-made bubbles of supposed contentment, all the while disobeying to some degree or another the command of our Lord Jesus Christ who said, go to all the world and preach the gospel. Make followers of Jesus because people around us are literally dying an eternal death. They will forever be without hope if they do not confess with their mouth, Jesus is Lord. Now, why do I begin this morning with a recap of last week's message from Dinesh along with this commentary? So we come to Jude 17 and through 23, we come to a section that presents to us a dramatic shift in the text. It's a dramatic shift while Jude will still have more to say to us about the, the descriptions, he'll have these descriptions of, of apostates, those who have once known had somehow to a degree or so embraced the truth of God, but now are fighting against that truth by proclaiming false teachings. The focus now turns from here's what they look like and here's what they're doing to now I'm speaking to you, the church. You notice that, do you not, in verse 17? But you. There's a contrast that's taking place. He, there's a shift in focus. He wants to speak to the body of Christ. He's speaking to each and every one who would say, I profess to know and trust and delight in the person and work of Christ. Dinesh's message was a call to boldness, giving us the reasons why we ought to be bold in sharing the gospel with others. In our text this morning, we find a call to boldness as well. Only I submit to you, and I've entitled it, that it's a call to arms. It's a time for war. We are being infiltrated from within. The church is being decimated not from forces simply outside of ourselves. We know the devil is a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. We know that we have enemies on the outside. But what will destroy the church or any local church the quickest is when there is the allowing of apostate teaching to be manifested. Now, we may not have it directly in the church, but we need to beware because it comes to us in some of the songs that are proclaimed as being Christian songs. It comes to us most profoundly through some of the books that are presented in Christian bookstores that really have no business being in a Christian bookstore. It comes to us through perhaps websites that we might visit that we begin to embrace false understandings and teachings, maybe not being apostate ourselves, but holding on to some of those particular teachings. And here Jude says, I need the church to wake up. It's a call to arms against apostasy. It is time for the church, Jude says in effect, for the church to pick up her weapons and boldly proclaim the truth of the gospel, particularly in a culture where such truths are being twisted and perverted. We have people out there saying that it is okay to murder babies if they're in the womb. That's twisted and perverted. We have churches that are saying, okay. We have people today teaching us it's okay to mutilate and castrate our children. That's not what the word of God says. If the church will not stand up and proclaim the truth, that these every child, every person is an image bearer of God and needs to hear and respond to the gospel of truth. We see this call to arms clearly stated back in verse 3, if you'll note it, note it with me. 
Jude said, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I just want to talk to you about the joys of being saved. Isn't that a great thing? This is talk about, I want to give you my testimony. I want to hear how you came to know Christ while I was making every effort to write to you of our common salvation. There was this compelling, I felt it necessary, it was absolutely imperative that I write to you, appealing to you, trying to get you to think about this, people, that you contend earnestly for the faith. That you, remember the Greek word for contend earnestly is agonize, agonizome, to agonize for the faith. You are fighting for the faith, this faith that was once for all handed down to the saints. Jude's call for believers is to contend earnestly, to war with intensity, to agonize in battle, this battle of faith against apostasy. One of the truths Jude has presented to us is that apostasy, this falling away from the revealed truth of God in order to embrace and propagate a false way of living, has always been present. We're not experiencing anything new today. We might think that, uh, wow, the United States, this is the worst it's ever been. I dare say it's never the worst it's ever been until the very end in the tribulation we read about how bad it will be. Such apostasy was found from the very beginning. How beginning am I saying? Beloved, apostasy was found in the very throne room of God when a creature by the name of Satan said to himself, I will be like the most high God. He knew the truth of God, and he failed to embrace it. And he began to propagate a completely different teaching, and he propagated it to an angelic host, and he and that angelic host apostatized. They fell away and were cast out of heaven. You can read of that in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. The practice of apostasy was present, beloved, in the garden of Eden, the place where God himself, it says, walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day when they heeded the false teaching of the serpent rather than obey the revealed truth of God. Apostasy was made evident in Israel on the heels of God's great display of delivering them from the, pre- the oppression of Egypt With such things being so, how can we think as the church today not expect that there would be those among us who would fall away from the living God having never trusted in him for salvation, never believing in his sovereignty, never embracing his truth? And so Jude makes that very clear just by way of reminder in verse 4. He says what? Certain people, certain people have crept in unnoticed. And I I, I just get almost giddy with the word crept it's a it's a creepy word crept i mean when you see a spider crawling creeping across your bed what do you do hi mr spider that's cool glad to see you no most of us jump and shake and swat and smack and and usually miss the spider and then he hides but certain people creepers have crept in unnoticed crept in where crept into the church, crept into the fellowship, crept into our minds through various teachings and and, and, uh, sermonizing and writing of books. Such certain people are identified by Jude as apostates. Notice that in verses 8, 10, and 12, Jude refers to them with a title simply as these men. These men, these, these creepers have come in. In Jude 11, he refers to them as they, and in verses 14 and 16, Jude speaks of them as these ones. He doesn't even want to identify them, but he has to. This brings us to our text, verse 17, where we find again this sudden shift of focus. The very opening words of verse 17 are, but you. We read, but you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, you could just stop there and think, what? You're supposed to remember what the apostles have taught. The early church did what? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The church is to be identified as those who go to God, to the spokesman that Jesus himself ordained to communicate the truth of the New Testament. Remember the words. 
The word but, as I said to you, is a conjunction. It actually stands to remind us that there is a contrast about to be made. And what is the contrast? This is a contrast to what has been previously discussed. In other words, in contrast to the apostates that I've just been speaking to you about, now I want to talk to you who are the saints, you who are not apostate, you who have embraced the truth. Here is your call to arms. Jude wants his readers to see this change in direction, this change of focus, this change of disposition. Rather than speaking of the denunciation and the coming destruction of the apostates, Jude now sets his eyes upon the church with sincere and affectionate exhortation to the Lord's own beloved saints. These are not those who are condemned. These are the beloved. Now, we will approach this text by noting that in verses 17 through 23, there are five commands, five imperatives in the Greek, five verbs that describe these exhortations by which the church is being called to arms. How do we stand against apostasy? How do we as a church unify ourselves together to be ready for whatever comes? And notice the verbs. In verse 17, we're called to remember the words of faith. In verse 21, the next key verb, keep yourselves in the love of God. The next command found in verse 22, have mercy or compassion or pity on those who are doubting. And then verse 23a, save others out of the realm of false teaching. And then finally, at the end of verse 23, he says, using the same verb as he had just used in verse 22, have mercy, only now it's have mercy with fear. The idea is that you don't go out to condemn those who are uh, doing false teaching. It's not your job to be uh, trying to um, belittle them. You want to have mercy on them, and you pray for them, and you pray that their hearts would be changed and transformed, and you hate even the garment that's polluted by sin. These commands will serve as our outline for the next couple of weeks as we examine this call to arms by which believers are to fight against and root out any potential apostasy, this tendency for people to fall away from the faith and to embrace ways of living that will only bring condemnation and eternal destruction. This morning, we'll look at the first of these commands and, and by which we combat apostasy, and it's found in verse 17, our first point, remember their words. That's what uh, Jude says, remember their words, but you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles. Now, I find it interesting, and I was so blessed in my study, so encouraged, that even before the call to remember the words, Jude reminds us of something we need to remember. Before he gives the command to remember the words of the apostles, he gives us something else to remember. Jude brings us back to remember something that he actually began the letter with. If you look back at verse 2, as he opens up this letter, he reminds the believers of their position. And he says that they are what? They are beloved in God the Father. You are the loved ones, the, affection, the ones receiving the affection of God the Father. I would submit to you then that one of the first things believers are to remember, if we would rightly war against falling away from the faith, is to remember our position, to remember our position. We are beloved. Jude begins by saying we are God's beloved, and let me remind you what a rich and delightful truth is encapsulated in that one word, beloved. If you, I hope you remember more than this, but if you don't remember anything else today, remember that if you are in Christ, you are beloved. The word beloved is used about 60 times in the New Testament. The first nine times the word beloved is used, it is a reference from God concerning his son, Jesus Christ. We read of such in Mark chapter 9, verse 7, when we read this, Then a cloud formed overshadowing them, the disciples, 
And a voice came out of the cloud from heaven, Matthew would say, and this is what they heard. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Immediately, God the Father identifies the position of Jesus. He is the loved one. There's no one so loved by the Father as the Son. And we can read of that throughout the Gospel of John. But it's interesting that after the first nine references to Christ as God's beloved, the other 51 references are used only to describe believers. Never anyone who's outside of Christ, anyone who's outside of the faith. And so we read in a passage uh, such as Ephesians 1 verses 5 through 6, this idea that, that when a person comes to faith in the, the work of Christ, when a person believes on Christ, he actually enters into a, a blessed union. He's in a privileged position. So does this describe you? You are about to see what God has done for you if you are in Christ. We read in Ephesians 1.5, He that is God the Father predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace. It's all about God, which he, God, freely bestowed upon us in the Beloved. Now, if you go back just a couple of verses, it says that we are in him, that we uh, are in Christ, that before the foundation of the world, God chose us to be in him. And he is what? He is, or who is he? He's the beloved. And now we are in the beloved. One translation puts it this way, to the praise of the glory of his grace, in which he did make us accepted in the beloved, even as Christ is accepted and loved and receives the affection of God the Father, that's what we have now in Christ. We cannot afford to miss what has happened. The term beloved is first applied to Jesus, but after his death and resurrection, by faith it becomes the apl application to every believer. The believers are now accepted in they are in union with the beloved one, Jesus Christ. Which means when God looks on you, he sees what? His beloved one. We become the beloved ones. Believers are said to be in Christ, meaning that we share everything that he possesses, including the love and acceptance of God the Father. And so just by way of brief application, how many of you have ever not felt loved? You wake up and just say, I'm a worm. Nobody loves me. Everybody hates me. Well, if you are in Christ, beloved, you need to come back to this particular statement. When you feel no one else loves you, remember that you are beloved by God if you have trusted Christ. Believers are reminded to remember their position before God. But this brings us to the actual uh, statement made by Jude here, the actual action in verse 17, and a call now to remember your possession from God. What do we possess? Jude introduces the first weapon of our warfare against apostasy. How can you and I war against apostasy? Well, you better remember something. Remember something. And so he writes that believers ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. So our key verb is to note, to note here is the verb remember. It is the first of the five imperatives that I spoke of found in verses 17 through 23. If we would earnestly contend for the faith, we must remember something. And Jude will tell us what it is. The word that Jude uses here is the Greek word menesco, which means literally to bring to mind or to think of again or over and over. The way Jude uses it carries the idea of something being finally and fully brought to mind and then kept there. It's like I, I, I might have forgotten it, but I'm taking it from the recesses of my mind. I'm putting it ever before me, and I will keep this now as my focus. I will remember the words where he's going. As it's used in the New Testament, it most often speaks of recalling information 
from memory. And the best way of recalling to mind truth is to be continually reading the scriptures, continually meditating on the word of God, memorizing as much of the word of God as you might possibly be able. Hence the command of Paul to the believers at Colossae. You remember the statement well when Paul says what? Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Might I just ask, how are you doing at allowing the word of God not only to dwell in you? I mean, some of us, that's step one. Just make sure that you're dwelling in the word and the word's dwelling within you. But then the call, let the word of Christ richly dwell in you, profoundly dwell in you. For as you do, you can call to your mind. You can put in the forefront of your thoughts every command, every promise, every blessing that is ours in Christ. If I were to ask you to do a little uh, exercise, I don't mean calisthenics. If I were to ask you to begin to list out some of the commands of Christ, Maybe, maybe make a couple of columns, the commands of Christ, the, the promises of Christ, and, and maybe the blessings of Christ. How far would you get? Do you think that, that you would fill a whole page from your own memory? If so, great. But even if you fill a whole page, and even the front and the back, even if you were able to do that, would you be done? Would there be more that you could dwell upon, more that you need to recall to your mind? See here, Jude is saying, I need you to remember the words. Bring them to the forefront of your mind. For if we do, we have a weapon against with which to fight against apostasy. Now, Jude has already brought to his readers' minds the admonitions and truths concerning Israel in verse 5, fallen angels in verse 6, the depraved cultures in verse 7, he has called believers to remember the examples of Cain in verse 11, along with Balaam and Korah. All of the, those examples were from the Old Testament. But here Jude pivots to speak to his readers of the apostolic warnings. I can tell you all day long, we can go read the Old Testament and see all the apostates. But now I need you to remember something that you were taught more recently. Something that's not just been about what what has happened, but something that is happening and will continue to happen. And so he makes this pivot to the present day and the present teaching of the apostles. Instead of submitting to the grumbling, complaining, and arrogant words of false teachers, Jude, with great urgency, says to the church, the Spirit says to us to remember the words of the apostles. These are the words that, were fr that are from God himself. For all scripture is what? Breathed out by God. Peter tells us that men were carried along, moved by the Holy Spirit to utter the very uh, uh, words of God. The word apostles in our text, the word apostle, you know, means the sent out ones, the, the messengers. We might say the ones who were tasked as spokesmen. These are the ones that God or Jesus said, I want you to proclaim my truths to the church. As Jude uses it here, it's a technical word that speaks not just of anyone who is sent out, but specifically of those 12 apostles whom God used to lay the foundation of the church. Contrary to what some denominations believe, there are no apostles today. The New Testament defines for us the criteria for being an apostle. According to Acts chapter uh, 1 and 1 Corinthians 9, an apostle, the criteria is that an apostle had to be one who had seen the risen Jesus Christ and had been appointed by Christ to carry the message of the gospel to every place Christ would lead him. An apostle is indeed an ambassador for Christ and therefore spoke with the authority of Christ. And what was one of the repeated messages given by the apostles? Well, we know they spoke about Jesus' death and resurrection, right? But do you know that one of the most often messages given by the apostles were warnings? Warnings against false teachers? The apostles spend so much time speaking about false teachers infiltrating the church and opposing the gospel. 
And it makes you start to think, well, where would they have come up with this idea that they should warn the church about infiltrators? Well, they got it from the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who spends an awful lot of time speaking of infiltrators and and those who counterfeit. In Matthew chapter five, uh, 7, verse 15, Jesus warned of apostates saying what? Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. That's a warning against apostasy. Jesus calls his apostles, he says there, beware, that is, never let your guard down concerning the possibility that the false teachers are trying to come in to the sheepfold. We are the sheep. Jesus is the shepherd. So where are the false teachers? How are they going to come in? The wolves will come in as, as sheep, looking like sheep. The command of Jesus here is in the present tense. So he's telling the disciples, you always must be aware. The disciples then begin to teach what? We must always be aware, be on guard, that we are at continual risk for the creeping creepers to creep in unnoticed. Such persons may possess titles. They may well have degrees in theology. They may hold the title or position of pastor or elder or deacon or Sunday school teacher. They disguise themselves. But regardless of what they wear on the outside, beloved, it is incumbent upon believers to consider their words and their way of living and to see if it conforms to the word of God, the word given to us by the apostles. The Lord's apostles were continually warned and called to warn believers against such apostasy. And so uh, much later, Paul comes along and he has an opportunity to speak to the elders at the church at Ephesus. And in Acts chapter 20, verses 28 through 31, and we see Paul now, he's expanding on the teaching of Jesus, isn't he? Jesus said, beware of the false prophets. And they come to you as wolves in sheep's clothing. And here, notice that uh, Paul, by inspiration of the Spirit, says, let me, let me expand this for you. And he says, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. No pressure. I mean, you know, you want a reason why you should be praying earnestly for the elders of a church? They have this task. He says, I know that after my departure, and now he's borrowing the language of Jesus, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away, to apostatize the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering, he has this idea of remembering, that night and day for a period of three years I did not cease to admonish, to warn, to call you out on these things with tears. Paul says that from among your own selves these men will arise. Beloved, apostasy is an inside job. It doesn't come from the outside. And this is what we find what Jude says. He says they've crept in unnoticed. It's an inside job. Notice that what that Paul says, such men will be speaking. That is present tense, they, meaning they will be speaking and continually speaking. And what are they speaking? It says they're speaking perverse words. What are perverse words? It means corrupted, distorted, crooked things. And why do they say such crooked things? In order, it says, to draw away. The word means to lure, to attract, to, to, uh, to uh, entice away any who would follow them. Isn't that not, not the exact language of Jude here in our text? In 1 Thessalonians, Paul warns about those who would come with flattering speech on a pretext of truth in chapter 2, verse 5. 
In 2 Thessalonians 2, we were warned that there would be coming a mystery of lawlessness, which is now already at work in the great apostasy that will come. Late in his life, Paul warns Timothy, saying in 1 Timothy 4.1, but the Spirit explicitly says that in the latter times, some will what? Fall away, literally apostatize from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. By the way, um, let's just be really clear on this. If it's not the truth of God, some people say, well, this is the philosophy of man. But what is the philosophy of man? It is the doctrine of demons. Later in, his li- later in this book, 1 Timothy 6, verses 20 through 21, Paul warns, oh, Timothy. Did you ever catch that? The, oh, Timothy. <laughs> Come on, Timothy. I need you to listen, young man. You're about to go before a congregation, and this is what you need to have on your heart and on your mind. Oh, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you. Avoid worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed, and thus, here it is, have gone astray, have apostatized from the faith. How do I do this? Paul says, grace, God's grace be with you. The apostle Peter also speaks profoundly against false teachers. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, he writes this, but false prophets, borrowing the very phraseology of Jesus from Matthew 7, 15, but false, uh, beware of the false prophets, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you. They're here, people. We need to identify them. The call to arms, but how do we identify them? And what do we do when we identify them? Well, Jude's saying we've got to remember the teaching. And the first teaching is to be on guard. He says, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies. They are creeping in unnoticed, secretly introducing destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. This is what we find Jude saying, that all the apostles have been telling believers of such things, and therefore it ought not to surprise us. In fact, we ought to be saying, oh yes, let's make sure our eyes are open. Now, I'm not talking in a conspiratorial kind of way. I wonder if so-and-so across the aisle is an apostate. It's not what we're talking about. It is to examine everything. It is to make sure that what we hear on the radio and read in our books and consume from our online readings are the words of the apostles, that we're remembering that these are the truths. As Again, the early church, what was it known for? Devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. Believers are re- to remember these words. This is what our possession is. We possess these words, and it's found to us in the word of God. Well, there's a a third thing we are to remember based on this verse. We are to remember the prediction from God. We're looking at verses 18 and 19. We'll start with verse 18. What were they saying? What were the apostles communicating? Again, it's very interesting. I mean, if you read through the book of Acts, one of the most prolific messages in the book of Acts is that Jesus died and rose again, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? So you see that profoundly in the book of Acts. You might think that's the only thing that the apostles ever talked about. But here, we are reminded that that's not the only thing the apostles talked about. They were saying to you, what? In the last time, there will be mockers following after their own, go- their own ungodly lust. Verse 18, Jude reminds believers specifically what they had these, these uh, apostles had said, but about what topic? Not about the resurrection, but about apostates. Not about the great apostle who is Jesus the chief, but the apostates who have fallen away. Jude says that they were saying to you, or literally that the the apostles on many occasions were saying, they over and over were saying, that's the idea being projected here, and what were they saying? That in the last time there will be mockers. And the word for mockers here speaks of those who maliciously make fun of others. Have you ever seen those kind of people? Were you ever one of those kind of people at school? We had to say sticks and stones may break my bones, but words, wow, they really do hurt me, don't they? 
Mockers are those who ridicule others. Mockers are those, we see them, uh, you know, I, I, I'm going out on a limb here. You all feel free to prove me wrong, but I would submit that the majority of what you see on any cable news station, I don't care if it's Fox News or whatever, is this idea of demonizing and ridiculing others rather than really trying to get to the heart of what is news. News stations have become mocking stations. We demonize others because of what they regard as important. And if we go out and say that we believe abortion's wrong because uh, we believe every life is a gift from God, we'll be what? Mocked. How dumb are you? It's a clump of cells. It doesn't mean anything. You just want to ruin women's lives. Peter uses this word mockers in the same context in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3, saying, Know this, first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts. The noun mocker, this, the noun for mocker is found only in these two verses in the New Testament. And this would seem to indicate that Jude is actually quoting from Peter. What I just read from you there, where Peter speaks, it may be well that Jude is quoting from Peter. And why would Jude quote from Peter? Because Jude knows Peter is an apostle. And he just said, we're supposed to remember what the apostles have told us. And he remembers that Peter said, in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking. So now, what is he doing? He's doing what we need to be doing. He's simply regurgitating and remembering the truth that had been spoken. It is interesting that while Jude, uh, uh, that while Jude uh, stays more general, not telling us of some of the specific false teachings that were creeping in the church, Peter actually does. For in the very next verse, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 4, we read what some of the mockers were saying. Notice it says, and they were saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. What was the false teaching? that the mockers mocked the believers for holding to as this is the faith. This is the faith, right? What do we believe? Jesus is coming again. We celebrate it every time we partake of the Lord's Supper. We do so until he comes again. We say, even, now, even so, Lord Jesus, come, come again. This is uh, the, the, the essence of our hope, the second coming of Christ. Now, I told you that the noun mocker is only used twice in the New Testament, but the verb to mock is used 13 times, with 11 of them used to mock, ridicule, scorn, or belittle the person and teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's used to belittle either the teachings of Christ as he taught them himself, as he was ridiculed and mocked, or anyone who would follow his teachings and proclaim them. If Jesus was mocked while he walked on the earth in his first coming, why should it surprise us that people would mock whether he's coming again? Let me remind you that Jude wrote this letter around 68 AD. Why is that important? Well, it had been some 35 years since Jesus Christ died, rose again, and ascended into heaven saying what? I'll be back. I'm coming again. Christ himself predicted his second coming in Matthew 24, 34. He made a statement that actually has puzzled so many people, really ought not to, but he says he gives the, some essence of the timing of his return when he says this, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now, you'll need to go and read the fuller context, but many of the people read that phrase, this generation, and conclude that, well, that meant by that his disciples, that's the generation, Peter and Paul and John, that Jesus would have to return. All of this is going to take place before this generation passes along. Well, by 67, 68 AD, most of the apostles had already been put to death. Paul had been recently beheaded. Peter was just uh, steps away from, of course, tradition tells us being crucified upside down. 
Jude's writing perhaps on the very edge of, of hey, maybe knowing that Peter has died. And the mockers are saying, been 35 years, he's not showing up. And you're an idiot for thinking he is going to come again. Further, we have the statement that it would be in the last days that mockers would come, right? The idea that the, the, the ridiculing of the idea of Christ's return, well, now that's, that's what's happening. It's all happening right there. Well, with regard to Matthew 24, 34, let me remind you again to read the context of what Jesus said. And Jesus, in that context, identifies a number of things that would be true at the time of his second coming. At the time of his second coming. And then he says that this generation that witnesses the events around my second coming will not pass away until all of these things have come to pass. He's not speaking about the, the apostles at all. He's just speaking about the generation that will witness the second coming of Christ. And so, again, the idea is that Jesus is coming again, and mockers will always then mock, why would you believe he's coming again? If people were saying, you're, you're really dumb for believing Jesus is coming again, it's been 35 years. What do you think people are doing to us now? You're really dumb. He's been gone for 2,000 years. You don't know anything about my God. Let me tell you about him. Jude says that in the last times these mockers will come. The phrase last time is eschatos chronos in the Greek. Eschatos meaning the final uh, with reference to t uh, place or time, the end. We talk about end times, eschatology. And chronos is where we get the idea of chronology. So the final chronology, the final markings off or the, the passing of time in sequence. We might think of a clock. If you're watching a clock, you see the, the passing of time in sequence or marking the days off on a calendar. That's the idea here. And Peter uses the same words in 1 Peter 1.20 that Jude uses saying, for he, Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world but notice what he says but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you meaning we are in the last times we learn that Christ has appeared in the last times. something that the writer of Hebrews also confirms to us in Hebrews 1 verses 1 through 2 God after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days or in these last times has spoken to us in his son whom he appointed heir of all things through whom he also made the world. When Jude speaks then about the last days or the last times, Jude wants believers to remember something. That phrase last times is a specific reference an expression that speaks of the time period that exists between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. In other words, Peter and Paul lived in the last times. And you and I live in the last times. We're going to see the consummation of all history end with the church age. It's going to move to the millennial kingdom. We'll see, we see that coming. These last days or times will end at the second coming of Christ when he returns. This means that we are now living in these last days. And the one thing that characterizes such days, one thing that you will know that you're living in the last days is whether or not people are mocking what you believe and profess to know about Jesus Christ. Well, we've seen that too. If we stand, if we are to stand against the apostasy, beloved, in these last days, it requires us to know, to study, and to proclaim the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. From the apostles to us, truths not only about Jesus, about sin, and about salvation, but notice in our text, we also are to be proclaiming the words about those who would fall away from the faith. If you do not know the faith, by the ministry of the Spirit of God, you are likely to fall away from the faith. Peter in 2 Peter 1 says, Beloved, make certain of his choosing and his calling of you. Make sure the Spirit of God is dwelling within you. 
rather than look to Christ and his return, the mockers mock that teaching. And according to the end of verse 18, they are those who are following not after God, not after godliness, not after Jesus Christ, not after those things that are holy, but what does it say? After their own ungodly lust. Notice that there is a repeated phrase from Jude 16. And it's also found in 2 Peter 3.3 3, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, mocking following after their own lust. Why do those who fall away from the faith, from the truth of God, do so? Why, would, why is it that there may even be some today who are not following Jesus? Why do you do that? Why would you not follow Jesus? It's because you are following your own ungodly lust. You prefer darkness to light. You prefer sin to righteousness. You know, these people that won't follow Jesus Christ, those who would mock Jesus, they might say, why don't they do it? We would say, why don't they follow Christ? Have they found some genuine error or some better philosophical means by which to live life? They'll tell you they have, but they never have an answer that satisfies. According to scripture, apostates deny God's truth simply because they do not like the idea of God telling them how they ought to live. He has shown you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do righteousness, to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly, broken, Jude calls their pursuit lust. That word is an interesting word because by itself, it simply means a strong desire. And the context has to tell us whether it's an evil thing or a good thing. And sometimes if it's a, a positive thing, we'll call it like a passion for Christ. Well, it's still a lust. It's a lust for Christ. We just, the word lust to us carries that negative connotation. So it's a strong desire. If directed towards God, we call it a passion for God. But here, uh, Jude identifies it as being an ungodly strong desire, meaning not godly, not God-directed, not prompted by God's spirit. We could rightly say wicked, evil, depraved. Jude describes the desire of apostates as being perverted and unrestrained. Remember, this is what God had foretold. This is God's prediction. This is what God said you should expect from the mockers and the apostates. But there's more to be said about those who fall away, and we find that in verse 19. And I had to think, why, did, why does he go now? Because it's kind of like he's shifting gears again. Because he says, but you, I want you to remember, remember the apostles' teaching. And then he kind of goes off into this area about, uh, the, the, you know, I've told you, they, here's the message that they're going to be mockers in the last day and they're going to be living in this ungodly manner. And now he goes back to a description. It's like we've gone backwards. And he says, these are the ones who cause division, worldly-minded, devoid of the spirit. And when I ask myself, why is he doing this? Because the verb is still intact here. Remember what these people are like. You will be able to identify them by their fruits. You will know them. So how do I identify them? It's as if he's saying, I want you to remember three things. Remember, these are the ones who cause division, right? Jude comes back to the use of the word these again. These men, these men. He's not referencing believers anymore, but those who have fallen away from the faith. Such ones as these cause divisions. One more time. Let me tell you about the apostate, Jude says. The verb cause division literally means to disjoin or to separate, to pull it apart. Those who fall away from the truth will always want separations, will always want some kind of isolation because here is the truth. Truth and error do not long cohabitate. 
Either the error will be weeded out by the truth, or the error will choke out the truth. And Paul would say that a believer is not to be unequally yoked with a believer, unbelievers and believers. Consider what scripture has to say about those who cause division in the church. Romans 16, 17, and 18. Paul writes with urgency. Now I urge you, brethren. I love it. Wake up. Listen. I urge you, brethren. Keep your eye on those who cause dissension. Isn't that what Jude just says? I need you to remember, Jude says, that these are the people that are trying to separate you. And, and now uh, Paul says, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you have learned. The faith once were all handed down to the saints. And turn away from them, apostatize. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Jesus Christ, but of their own appetites, their own ungodly lust, And by their stomachs and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts. Of the unsuspecting. Isn't that Paul saying the creepers have crept in unnoticed? The urgency of the words, keep your eye on those, watch them carefully, be a, a bulwark, be a safeguard against those who cause the divisions and hindrances contrary to what you have learned. Learn from who? Paul would say, What you've learned from me, what I have communicated to you as an apostle of Jesus Christ, exactly what Jude has been communicating. Remember the words spoken by the apostles. Such persons cause, he says, dissensions or divisions in the church. May I remind you that in Galatians 5.20, how many of you know Galatians 5.22? Fruit of the Spirit, right? What's Galatians 5.19 and 20? The deeds of the flesh. What's one of the deeds of the flesh? A causer of dissensions and divisions. Apostates are not believers. They're not guided by the Spirit. They're guided by their own flesh. The point is that those who fall away from the faith are those who seek to divide or separate God's people. There's a call then to unity that must always be around the truth of God's word as we seek to remember the words that were spoken to us. The words that comprise, Jude says, the faith for which we contend earnestly. One of the greatest challenges, I believe, in the pursuit of doctrinal unity is determining what are the essentials of the faith. What will we divide over? What ought we to divide over? And, and what are just those, you know, little distinguishing characteristics? What are those things which we, we can simply not uh, yield to? And that would take a whole other sermon to get through, but I can tell you that among genuine believers, the essentials will always revolve around salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone around the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ, around the inspiration of the scriptures as being truly God-breathed, and the depravity of humanity. Those who do not hold such things can lead others <clears throat> down a path of subtle apostasy. <clears throat> if believers are to contend earnestly against apostasy, then they must realize, again, remember that uh, these are the ones who cause division. He says, remember that they're worldly-minded. <clears throat> Remember that they're worldly-minded. I'm like, it's one of those things like, duh. But I, I think we give a lot of, of, of grace in the wrong way with this. We allow people to get away with things instead of simply boldly saying, that's not what Scripture says. Now, worldly-minded, what does that mean? It's kind of not the clearest translation. The Greek word literally means soulish or natural. <clears throat> natural. And speaks of a person who is only interested in worldly or natural things. They have no real mindset on the Spirit of God. <clears throat> we would say that rather than looking at supernatural or spiritual things, they want to just, they want to have their cake right now and eat it too. <clears throat> Such a person is not interested in the things of God. They're certainly not being led by the Spirit of God. The idea of being worldly-minded is having your focus being on those things that are temporal, those things that are physical and, <clears throat> and earthly. Paul actually uses the word three times in 1 Corinthians, one you're probably very familiar with. We read in 1 Corinthians 2.14, but a worldly-minded man, but it's translated there, I think, better, 
but the natural man. The man that has no interest in spiritual things, the, who cares not of supernatural things, the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. The spiritual things and the Spirit of God, that, that is foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because why? He has to have an inclination. He has to have a desire for spiritual things. The natural man cares not about the gospel of Jesus Christ because the gospel is not primarily uh, about the natural part of man. It's about something that needs to change spiritually within him. Therefore, the gospel and the preaching of the cross, Paul would say in the previous chapter, is foolishness to those who are perishing. They, they think it's foolishness because, well, they don't think about spiritual things. The natural man being without the spirit is incapable of comprehending his own spiritual condition. This reminds us that apart from the ministry of the Holy Spirit in a person's life, the truth of the scripture will never be rightly understood. We pray for the spirit of God to open the eyes of the heart of those who we would desire to understand the gospel. Beloved, this is the fate of the natural person. They have not spiritual life being dead in their trespasses and sins. So remember that. Remember that if you're with a person who's always concerned about the things of this world, you better be careful that they don't lead you down a path of apostasy. And finally, the final uh, aspect of this contention against apostasy is we are to remember that such men as these are devoid of the Spirit. Simply put, those who fall away from the Lord obviously do not have the Spirit of God indwelling them because the Spirit of God is that which guarantees the inheritance of our salvation. Beloved, one of the best tests of being a Christian is knowing that you are indwelt, that you have residing within you the Spirit of God. And how do you know that? And there's where we come back to Galatians 5.22, right? Oh, we say it so often, but, you know, that should be kind of your, your, your test every day. Wake up and say, God, help me practice the fruit of the Spirit. May I be an expression of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. At the end of the day, as you go to sleep, you ought to say, God, has your spirit indwelt me? Have I yielded myself to the power of the spirit? And God, not in an audible voice, but God would say, have you experienced love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, or self-control? Or have you rather, you can look at the verses before, manifested the deeds of the flesh? One indicates you are full of the spirit, the other one indicates you are devoid without the Spirit. Without the indwelling of the Spirit, you are not a believer. How do we know that? Romans 8, 9 says, However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God, what? Dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. If you do not have the spirit, you are not a believer. Jude states it as being devoid, not possessing, not of having laid hold of the spirit of God. The natural or worldly-minded person is without the spirit. No apostate is a believer. Beloved, it does us good to consider the words of Jude here. We are to remember the words of the apostles and all who faithfully convey then their words. If we would be those who contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to us, we must pour ourselves into scripture. We must become increasingly familiar with God's precepts, praying that we might live them out increasingly every moment of our lives. How are you doing? Those who fall away from the faith will always seek to lead others away from the faith that was once for all handed down to the saints. Well, let me close by asking you some simple questions. Are you certain this morning that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If you had to be interviewed by the elders and answer that question, how would you answer it satisfactorily? If the pastor pulled out all of the theological stops, are you certain? Have you a genuine desire for the things of God? Or do you need to be coaxed into knowing 
them because you're more concerned about the temporal things in this world. If you have to be coaxed into wanting to know more about God, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Do you earnestly seek to surround yourself with those who are living godly lives for Jesus? Or would you rather separate yourself from them? Oh, I'm glad when church is over. Get away from those wild Christians. If you answer yes to these, then you are headed and heeding towards the call to arms to fight against the apostasy in the church. But to any degree that one or more of these things are not true of you, then repent. Return to God. Confess your sin and, re and, and seek to be renewed that you would be granted the Holy Spirit of God to live for the glory of God in the context of the church of God to the exaltation of the Son of God who saves us. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for the challenge of these words of Jude reminding us to remember the truth the truth that was once for all handed down to the saints the truth that is comprised in your word may we love your word may it be our delight like newborn babies may we long for the pure milk of the word so that by it we may grow in respect to salvation having tasted the kindness and the goodness of the Lord. Father God, I pray that we would be a people who are bold in sharing the gospel, that we believe in your sovereignty, we believe in your truth, we know that you've given us responsibility, you've given us this call to arms by which we begin by remembering your truth, that we might proclaim it rightly. For we ask and pray these things in Jesus' name.